Um, I want you to go to um, Matthew chapter 21, verses 21 and 22. <clears throat> then Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, if you have faith, and don't doubt, you can do anything like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. You can pray for anything. And if you have faith, you will receive it. Uh, we've been in a series on bold prayers, and um, I want to move into um, another uh, dimension of the teaching. I'm calling it a divine override, a divine override. Have you ever been at Walmart or CVS or Target or Macy's, and you're checking out, and the person that's helping you uh, check out, there's some kind of mistake, there's some kind of error or something, and suddenly they can't go any further. And so they call their manager, and some other person comes over there, and they put a key in, and they punch a code in, and they override, and suddenly they fix my problem. The person that came to help had more authority, had more knowledge, had more experience, had a different office, a different level of responsibility, and when the cashier ran into a problem and hit a, hit a ceiling, she called for an override. Another way, way the word override is used pertains to our, our presidential veto. The way our Constitution is written, the, our, the legislation produces uh, a piece of legislation and it has to go to the president's desk. And he has the authority to either sign it, and it therefore becomes law, or he can veto the bill. So oftentimes in our history, the Senate and the House sends a bill that they have approved to the president. He looks it over, and he says, I don't agree. I don't think that's good for our nation. And he vetoes it, and that's it. However... There is a, a, a provision in our Constitution for an override. If the Congress, the Senate and the House both, have two-thirds majority vote for a particular piece of legislation, then it overrides the presidential veto. If you look back through history, there have been a number of overrides that have happened when presidents have said no to a particular piece of legislation, but the Congress overrides his authority and, the, and it becomes law. They do that with two-thirds majority in both the Senate and in the House. So the concept of an override is that someone with greater authority, someone with more power, overrides someone else. Someone that has the power and the authority steps in and changes the outcome. I want to talk to you today about a divine override. When God steps into your life and mine, when God steps into situations and he overrides the will of man and he overrides even the natural course of events for our lives, it's a divine override. Jesus taught this in the book of Matthew. He walked by a fig tree one day, and he just looked under the leaves for a fig. There were none there. 
because it was not the season for figs. The fig tree really hadn't done anything wrong. But as an illustrated sermon, Jesus cursed the fig tree. So the next day, he and the disciples walked by the same place, and the disciples noticed the fig tree had totally withered overnight. It was dead. And they're like, wow, isn't that amazing? He cursed that fig tree, and it dried up and died overnight. Jesus used it as a teaching opportunity. And he said, if you'll have faith in God, you'll be able to curse even a fig tree, and it will die. And he said, not only that, But you can speak to mountains and command them to be lifted up and thrown into the sea. And whatever you ask when you pray, if you believe, you will have whatever you say. He's talking about a divine override. When God steps up and he overrides man's authority, man's choices, even the laws of nature itself, he steps up and he gives an override. And that's called a miracle. Can you say amen? You know, this summer has been somewhat tumultuous to say the very least, but bizarre things have happened from natural disasters like floods, fires, and earthquakes this week, terrible murders, unthinkable terrorism, um, the most bizarre presidential campaign that might have ever been in history. Um, And and in this climate, I've heard people say things like this, well, you know, God has everything under control. You know, and I understand what they mean by that. I really do. But if we break it down a little bit today, God doesn't have everything under control. I assure you, he doesn't have ISIS under control. That's not his idea. That's not his work. That's not his plan. And he's not doing those things. And uh, when madmen murder dozens of innocent people, God didn't figure that out. That's not God. He did not have that under control. So just to say blanketly, God has everything under control is not really the full story. I assure you that God doesn't have the Republican Party under full control. I assure you he does not have the Democratic Party under full control. You see, there is a little factor called man's free will that has to be factored into everything that's going on you know when you or I fail God and 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 breach one of his laws and commit a sin it's not like God's got it all under control he made that happen no God cannot sin he does not tempt any man to sin it's never his idea we're exercising our own free will So somehow before we just say blankly, well, it's okay because God's got it all under control, we have to realize that man has the will and the volition to do things that are totally contrary to the will of God. But I will say this unequivocally, that God controls the outcome. And man can do whatever man chooses to do, but God's will will ultimately be accomplished. And his plan in the earth will ultimately be completed. And whatever he originally desired, he will ultimately have. And whatever he has designed for the end will indeed come to play. So I guess in that regard, God has it all under control. But in the middle, it's a lot of chaos as men do wicked and evil and unrighteous things. But God is God, and so he is God. He can take the chaos of man, the wrong choices of man, and bring about good things. You see... 
we all have choices to make. God gave us the freedom to choose. And in every choice that we make, there is either a blessing or a curse. There's either reward or there are consequences. We talk about the judgment of God. And uh, again, a big subject. You can't, you, can't, you can't explain it with a sentence. But the truth is that every time you and I make a poor choice in life, there are built-in consequences to that choice. Now, you can call that the judgment of God. I don't know. I'm just telling you, when you do the right thing, you're blessed. And when you do the wrong thing, there's consequences. And it's all built in. You know, if you, if you choose chemicals and you end up chemically addicted, the consequences of that, they're built in. They're waiting for you. Just choose that, and you're going to suffer the consequences. And that's just one illustration. When we choose the wrong thing, that choice has built in it consequences. When we choose the right thing, there's blessings built into that as well. So when I choose life, when I choose good, I choose blessing. And when I choose evil, I choose pain and sorrow and bondage. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, this is what God said to Israel. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, God said, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and your length of days. And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. Wow. God makes it clear to all of us, even today. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. I want you to choose life because I want to bless you. And I want your life to have meaning and purpose. But if you don't make the right choices, there are consequences built into those choices. And you and I, our lives tend to become the result of the choices that we make. Now, sometimes bad things happen to good people. We know that. It isn't because we made the wrong choice. It's because someone else made the wrong choice. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. And if I make the right choices, it has a positive effect on you. And if I make wrong choices, it has a negative effect on your life. And if you make good choices, you're having a positive effect on my life. And if you make bad choices, you're having a a negative impact on my life. Because we're all in this together. And so the better choices you make, the better my life is going to be. And the better choices I make, the better your life is going to be. But with that said, we know that sometimes bad things happen to good people. There are sicknesses, there are accidents, there are betrayals, there is all kind of things that other people decide that directly affect us. And we have to believe whether it's a sickness that I didn't do anything to cause or whether it's some betrayal that someone perpetrates against me, I have to believe that God controls the outcome. Maybe he's not controlling all of everybody's decisions and everything that's going on. It's not like he puts sickness in somebody. He doesn't do that. But he promises us that he will control the outcome, the end results. God's always into the end. He's, He's always into the results. He's not so caught up in the moment as he is the end game. 
And that's what God controls most. And so we have to trust in God's divine providence that regardless of what happens to me, whether I can control it or not, that in the end, He's going to bring good toward me because He's God and He's at that level of authority. Let me move on. Think about the life of Joseph. Now, if you've read the Bible, uh, in the book of Genesis, you know the story of Joseph. He was uh, the son of Israel, and uh, he was Israel's favorite son, as a matter of fact, and youngest. And, uh, and so there came a time when Joseph's older brothers greatly resented him, and they did the worst thing they could possibly do. They sold him into slavery, and they told his father that he had died. Of course, broke his father's heart. It was just a terrible, terrible mistake, a horrible choice for those brothers. And, and Joseph became the victim of his brother's envy and resentment and hatred. He became the victim of that, and he ends up being sold into slavery and carried into Egypt. And um, if you study the life of Joseph, you find out that he couldn't catch a break for anything. I mean, he kept doing the right thing, but the wrong things just kept happening. And the more integrity and the more faith in God he seemed to demonstrate in his life, the worse people would treat him and the worse he would be done by others. But remember, God doesn't control the individual choices that you or I make, and he doesn't control the choices others around us make. But God controls the end result. He controls how it, the outcome. And so at the end of Joseph's life, after he's been sold into slavery, betrayed by Potiphar's wife, cast into prison, forgotten by people that he had loved and held, finally God says, now's the time, and he lifts him up out of prison, and he makes him the prime minister of Egypt, Egypt being the world empire of that day, and he puts him at the head of state to control the nation. The world goes into seven years of extreme famine, and God used Joseph to preserve the world, and especially to preserve his family that had betrayed him. And so bad things happen to good people because of choices other people make. But God said, if you'll be faithful like Joseph was and keep doing the right thing, I will control the end game and I will bless you in the end. I will do good for you in the end because God controls the outcome. And so now Joseph is prime minister. His brothers that betrayed him and sold him into slavery and told their father he was dead, they come begging for food in Egypt because Joseph had food. And they end up moving the whole family there because Joseph receives them and receives his family and forgives them. But then I, Israel dies, the old man dies. And the brothers are thinking, okay, when dad dies, brother Joseph is going to pay us back big time. They just knew their life was worth nothing. So they go to Joseph and they're begging for their lives, hoping that maybe Joseph will let them be his slave and not take their lives. Listen to what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended me harm, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. This is one of the wisest statements in the entire Bible. They come to him begging for their life, figuring he's going to pay them back, and they deserved it. But in his, instead, he said, 
am I in the place of God? I'm not going to punish you. I'm not God. You meant it for harm. Your motives were wrong. Your intent was entirely evil. What you did could not have been more wrong. But woven into your rebellion and your wickedness and your, your resentment and the anger you had toward me, woven into that, God's bigger picture plan was at play. And so at the end of his life, he's, instead of hating those that had mistreated him, he, he forgave them and he said, you know, I know you meant me harm. I know your intentions were entirely evil. But you know, I serve a God that controls the outcome. I serve a God that has more power and authority, and he can take the chaos of man, the wrong decisions of man, the hatred of man, and somehow he gets his plan done. And if I'm on his team, it's going to work out for me because he always controls the outcome. So if you're going through something in your life, it doesn't mean God's doing this to you. Don't get mad at God. Just trust God. Men do things that are wrong. Men do things that hurt you and cost you. But keep doing the right things, and God will bless you in the end because he's God. And he doesn't control everything we do and say as individuals, but he always controls the outcome. So in the end, you can say, like Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God he meant it for good. The book of Romans chapter 8 verse 28 may be another of the great verses in the Bible. They're all good, but you've got to know there's some better than others. And here's one of those. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things God works for the, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things means all things. God is never out of control. He's never out of control. So he doesn't control everything because he gave us free will. But at the end of the day, he's not going to let this thing implode or explode. He's not going to let it all fall apart. Man is not going to destroy the planet and destroy the human race because God controls the outcome. And he's not going to let the devil or people destroy you and me because we are his children. And he gives them a limit. Like every man has a limit. You've got a limit of authority, a limit of what you can do. And God establishes those perimeters. Now, I won't have time today, but if I were to bring up the story of Job, you would see how God drew a line and said, Satan, you can do anything you want inside this circle. You remember the story of Job? He was a good man, blameless. And God said to the devil, okay, devil, you can do anything you want inside this circle, but you can't get outside that circle. You can take everything he owns, you can destroy everything I've given him and blessed him with, but you can't touch his life. And I'm telling you right now, God's got a circle around every single one of us. And he said, okay, you just have fun, devil. Do whatever evil thing you want to do. Just think up something bad and go ahead and turn it loose. But I've got that, my son and I've got my daughter in a circle, and you can't get outside that. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said that we live in the palm of God's hand and no one can pluck us out. When you're in God's hand, everything's going to end up okay. It doesn't mean everything's going to go right and devil's not going to do anything. It just means there's a limit. Perimeters. There's an extent. And God said it's not going to go beyond that. Well, there was Joseph. On the other hand, there was a man whose name was Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples in the inner circle of Jesus. 
followed Jesus, heard Jesus' teaching, saw the miracles. Christ chose him as one of the, the twelve. Gifted him. Um, trusted him. We think that he was probably like the treasurer of the ministry of Jesus. Because he had the money box. He had the purse. In other words, he paid the bills and kept the receipts and figured out how much they had and how much they had spent. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of trust when you give someone the purse strings. And this is what he gave to Judas, who's a follower of Jesus. Jesus, on one occasion, empowered Judas and all the rest of the disciples to go out and preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to bless the cities. And Judas was right there in the middle of that. So, you know, I conclude that Judas was a man of ability. He must have surely have made a lot of right choices. I mean, he didn't do everything wrong, or Jesus probably would have never chosen him. So evidently, there was a real mixture in Judas. In some ways, he made the right choices, and in other ways, he just did the wrong thing. And we see little glimpses of that in the story of Judas and the life of Christ, how that all along, there was, there was something just a little off about Judas. A little off. And you, you could focus on all the good things and all the right things, but all along, there was something just a little off. I'm just going to leave that with you right now. I'm going to move right away from that because I know you got a picture of somebody in your mind right now. It's just, a, it's just a little bit something wrong with that folk, okay? I get that. Um, so in the end, Judas made a devastating personal choice. He went to the high priest and he offered to betray Christ to inform them secretly as to where he would be at a certain time outside the protection of the crowds which they feared. Because he knew Jesus' patterns. He knew when he would pray. He knew where he would pray. He knew his secluded prayer, place of prayer. And so he went there and he sold them information for 30 pieces of silver. And of course he betrayed Christ and they arrested Christ. They falsely tried him. They crucified him. And he died. And Judas made the choice that triggered the crucifixion. In the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 21, this is how it is summed up by Christ himself. They're at the Last Supper, just before he's going to be arrested later that night and then crucified the next day. And he's sitting there with his 12 disciples, and they're having a beautiful meal together, a time of closeness and covenant, and uh, they're getting ready for a huge transition that's about to take place. It had to be a very special moment, just what Jesus said. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him. So in this one single verse, we see divine providence and we see the free will of man coupled together. So Jesus said, it has already been determined by my Father that the Son of Man is going to die. The Bible teaches that Jesus, in the mind of God, was slain as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for our sin, before the foundation of the world. 
I mean, before he ever created anything, he had already had this plan in his mind, and he said, Jesus, my son, is going to die in behalf of the sinful human race. God determined it. That's divine providence. Man didn't think that up. Man didn't make that happen. That was, that was God that said, someday my only son is going to die on Calvary as a stand-in for every human being on the planet. That was the divine providence. God made that plan. And so Jesus said, now there's one among me who's, who's with me as a friend, but as God my Father has already described I'm going to be crucified. But then he adds to that, but wow, what sorrow awaits the one who betrays me? So it was God's big plan idea, but Judas was going to pay for the choice he made. So somehow God's big picture plan happens without violating our human will and still holding us accountable for what we choose to do. So Judas was a part of God's big master plan of salvation and redemption. But at the same time, he was responsible for stepping up to the plate and making the choice to be the one that betrayed Jesus. So that's kind of a picture that helps me to understand how this thing works. So men are out there making choices and doing things right and doing things wrong and deciding this and deciding that, and it's just a bunch of chaotic individuals making all kinds of different choices, and out of all that chaos in the world, God has a straight line, a pure stream of His will, a plan that's not off track. It's not early. It's not late. It's going right along just as He planned because He's God, and God can bring order out of chaos, and He can make sense out of confusion because He's God. So somehow, God is in control of everything, and yet nothing, because we're all a bunch of human beings around here doing what we want to do, and that's how big and wonderful our God is. It's called divine providence. Divine providence is the governance of God by which, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of the outcome. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole. Psalms 103 verse 19 said, The Lord made heaven and earth and rules over everything. You see, there's no authority higher than God. He is the highest authority. Now, there are many levels of authority and, and, and spiritual beings and human beings that serve on those different levels of authority. But God, He's like all authority. And no one is outside or out from under His authority. This is divine providence. So man produces chaos and sin, but God brings order and peace because he has the ultimate authority. His authority overrides the will of man. It overrides cultural choices. It overrides people groups. It overrides even the laws of nature. His authority can override anything. So when God created the heavens and the earth, by his word, he spoke certain laws into, into being. We call them the laws of nature. And these laws govern planet earth and every created thing. His own mouth spoke that into being. The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews that the word of God holds the, keeps the world in order. 
The Word of God is what keeps this planet spinning and, and rotating around the sun. Everything in the planet is there because God's authority spoke it into being and His authority is keeping it working like it is. But there comes a time when God overrides His own law. When God steps up and says, now, the natural order of things is this. But I'm going to override my own natural order, and I'm going to change the outcome. There are times when God defies nature and the laws of nature, and he steps up and he gives an override, an override of the laws of nature that he created, that emanated from his very being. But he gives an override. Let me give you some examples. Your mind's probably already ahead of me on this, but let me just bring us all together. The laws of nature say that a man cannot walk on water. The laws of nature said you will drown. You cannot walk on water. The laws of nature have always said that. They always will say that. You cannot walk on water. But we see Jesus walking on the water. He was giving a divine override. I know the law says you can't walk on water. The laws of gravity, the laws of physics, all that says you can't walk on water. But I'm God. My Father's given me all power in heaven and earth, and I'm going to override that law, and I'm just going to walk on water. And he says, Peter, come on out here with me, and you can walk a little bit. Probably one of the stupidest things Peter ever did. <laughs> no. There was a moment he was thinking, what was I thinking? Because the Bible said when he saw the winds and the waves, he got frightened and he started to sink. And Jesus had to reach out and pull him back up. So there was a moment he's thinking, boy, that was stupid. I should have stayed in the boat. <laughs> anyway, if you've never done anything stupid, you don't get that. But I've done some things that I'm like, what was I thinking? But anyway, back to my point. God has the power to override the laws of nature. And so they didn't have enough food to feed the multitude. The disciples said, send them all to town. Send them to McDonald's, Whataburger, Burger King. they got to have something to eat. Jesus said, no, send them down. We're going to feed them. They said, we just got five little biscuits and a couple of fish sticks. That's all we got. He said, I think that'll be enough. Hey, listen, the laws of nature say that ain't going to be enough. I mean, anybody in their right mind knows that five loaves and two fishes ain't hardly going to feed a man, much less a multitude. But it's okay. I'm God. And I have the power of override. And I can just override the laws of nature. And I can multiply this bread and feed as many people as I want to feed and have more left over after I'm done than before I started. Because God has the power of override. So, the laws of life said, when you're dead, you're dead, over, done with, nothing we can do about it. And even to this day, the finest medical doctors, the finest medical science we have to offer, when you're dead, you're dead, and it's over with. I pulled up the hospital the other week, and there was a parking spot for the clergy. I'm like, all right. All right. <laughs> right beside me, there was a parking spot. For the funeral director. <laughs> it just hit me wrong. <laughs> it just hit me wrong. <laughs> anyway, 
You need both at a hospital. You need a pastor and you need a funeral director because it doesn't always work out. <laughs> and so this lady lost her son. And uh, she lost her son, and they're carrying him to the, his burial. And Jesus kind of happens as God calls this thing to just kind of happen. Around the right time, and he sees this widow crying. She has no husband now. She now has no children, and she's alone, and she's weeping for the loss of her only son. And Jesus stops the party, the, the procession, and he just puts life back in that boy. He just comes back alive right there on this road, and he rejoins the son back with the mother. Now, only God can do that. But he is God, and he can do that, and he just has this divine override. Dead means dead. Mean dead means it's over with. Dead means it's finished. Dead means there's nothing anybody can do about it. Unless, of course, you're God. And Jesus was God. And so he just institutes a divine override, and suddenly a boy that was dead is now back alive. So my point is that when you and I are facing difficulties in life, and the laws of probability are against us, and even the laws of nature are against us. And the natural course of events that govern and control the world are totally against us. God can step into that situation and say, I want to give you a divine override because my authority and my power is greater than the forces that are governing this situation. So man has his free will, but God can override a man's free will. And sometimes they're not godly men, they can be ungodly men. For instance, remember the verse in the Old Testament that says that God can change the heart of a king, a wicked king, an ungodly king, can change the heart of the king like he can change the course of a mighty river? God said, I can just make a wicked, evil person do what I want them to do whether they want to or not. Because God can put an override on man's will, not just the laws of nature, but can override man's will, and suddenly people are doing things they didn't plan to do, don't know why they're doing it, and would have never done any other circumstances, but God just gave somebody a divine override, and things have begun to change. So you and I live in a world that is mostly godless, mostly unbelievers, and we're subject to their choices. But we serve a God that has all power and authority in heaven and earth. When we pray and we ask God for help, at any moment God can step into that situation of chaos, of men doing wrong things and things happening around us that we can't control, sicknesses and diseases and economic effects, and He can step in and override all that stuff and suddenly begin to do His will for you and me. And that's where we come back to prayer. Prayer is asking God for a divine override. Prayer is asking God for a miracle. A miracle is when something happens that would not have otherwise happened, could not have otherwise happened. Something that is contrary to the laws of nature, contrary to the natural course of events, contrary to anything that would have otherwise happened. God steps in and says, I'm going to make a little change here, and this is going to happen because I command it to happen. You see, because God gives me my own free will doesn't mean he still doesn't have authority over me. And at any moment, he can step in and override my will and begin to cause me to do something I would not have otherwise done. And that's true about a saved man and an unsaved man as well. So Jesus said, when you pray, pray big prayers. 
Pray bold prayers and believe that I'm big enough to do it. You know, if you pray small prayers, it's because your view of God is small. And sometimes it's because your view of yourself is small. But when you see how big God is and how much he loves us and how much he wants us to help, then we can pray some big, bold prayers. And we can say to fig trees, dry up and mountains be removed and dead people come back to life. I mean, that's Jesus used the biggest examples. He used the big examples so that there would be no limit on our faith and no limit on our prayer meeting. And we would be encouraged to believe God for big things and pray bold prayers. How many of you are still praying your bold prayer that we wrote week before last? <clears throat> you know, sometimes God works directly, and sometimes he kind of works indirectly. To get his will done, he can use people, and indirectly, things come around and things happen according to his will. And uh, people, people do what he wants done, even though they don't realize he wanted it done. Uh, we have so many examples of that in Scripture. One of, I mentioned in Judas. Judas didn't realize. He was just playing in to the sovereign will of God, the, 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 un, the, the, the timeless redemptive plan. He didn't know it, but he's just like an actor. And, he, and he, the, the, the sin and the rebellion of his own heart, the greed of his own heart, was pulling him along a path that God knew for sure he would go. God didn't make that choice, so God held him responsible for the choices he made. But he moved right in that plan. So sometimes God works indirectly. And then sometimes God works directly. And when God works directly, that's when there's a, a divine override. And he steps up and puts his authority and his power into play. And changes the circumstances, usually in a sudden and an immediate kind of a way. It's all about authority. Um, you know, I, I see this more clearly than ever before, but it's still, still a, a big picture, a, a, a great mystery to me, how the, the whole universe operates on authority. It operates on authority. And God has all power in heaven and earth. And Jesus said, my Father has given me all power. Now, all means all. That means there's no other outside what he has. It's all. There's, there's not two categories. It's all. And Jesus gave it. The Father gave it to Jesus. And so Jesus said to us, I want to give you authority. I want, to, I want to delegate authority. Now, none of us have all power individually, but all of us have some delegated power that he bestows upon us. And when you and I pray, it isn't begging or pleading or acting pitiful or pulling on God's heartstrings. It's not making God feel sorry for us, but it's an exercise of the level of authority that we live on. And Jesus is saying, if you can live on a, on a level of authority, your prayer life will be much more effective. And you can change the natural course of things if you will operate on a high level of faith, high level of authority. And there is a, a merge between faith and authority. I'm, I'm coming to a close here. Just going to drop this and, and move on. There, there's a merge between faith and authority. And we see that again in the scripture where uh, there was a... Um, a man that came to Jesus and said, my servant's dying, and I need you to heal him. Jesus said, okay, I'll go to your house and pray for him. The guy said, you don't need to come to my house. I'm not really worthy. I don't know, maybe his house wasn't clean or something, but <laughs> I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. But if you'll just speak the word, then my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, oh, that's something 
He said, oh, yeah. He said, I'm a man under authority. I have men under me, and I have men over me, and, and, I, and, and I speak the word, and I say, go here and go there, and they go do what I ask them to do because it's a matter of authority. And this, this man, he had a revelation that Jesus was healing people through authority. And so he just said, just speak the word, release that authority, and my servant will be healed because this man understood that miracles happen in conjunction with authority. And this is what Jesus said when it was all said and done. He said, wow, did you hear that? I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. So what the man was referring to as authority, Jesus called faith. So there's a, there's a link between faith and authority. Faith is a release of authority. That's why I said we don't go to God begging and pleading and acting all pitiful like. We go to God confidently and boldly believing that he has empowered us and given us the authority to ask for the things that we need. And if we ask in faith and exercise the authority he's given us, then he'll do whatever we ask. Can you say amen? amen. <coughs> I wonder how many of you here today need a divine override. I wonder how many of you here, uh, you've been so kind to listen and be responsive to my teaching this morning. I wonder how many of you are thinking about an area of your life or a situation you're in right now where you need a divine override. Well, I mean, it just doesn't look like it's going the right direction. It just, not, just doesn't look like it's going to happen right. And uh, you need God to step in and override what people have done, maybe even what you've done. Because sometimes we make mistakes. We do dumb stuff and the consequences come down on us. And we say, God, I blew it. I admit it. It was stupid. I'm sorry. Can I still have one of those overrides? I mean, I do it all the time. You know, God, I realize I shouldn't have done that. I realize that was wrong and I'm sorry for it. And I know I made this mess. But would you come down here and override it and turn it around and make it good? God says, well, since you ask." I'll be glad to. Because God's in the overriding business. It's his great pleasure to do it for us. He loves us. Can you believe it? He really loves us. And he wants to bless us. And it's his good pleasure to answer our prayer. So how many of you today need a divine override? I feel the spirit of Jesus in place today. Surely he's come near. Father, I've given the word that you have given to me. And I ask you now to speak to the, directly to the hearts of the people. Let the finger of God touch them. In the very place that they need to be healed or, or helped. Stretch out your hand over our congregation, Lord. Touch the hearts of men. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive us for being unbelieving and doubtful. Forgive us, Lord, for worry and fear. God, give us faith and boldness. And give us a divine override. We forgive others as you have forgiven us, and we ask you to step into our situation and help us. Release your ultimate power and change our circumstances. In 
in moments like these that we experience the closeness and the nearness of God and God's reality grows in our own hearts and lives if we can learn to be responsive at moments like this it can sure change our lives and our church and our community here today and you've never given your life to Christ, you've never asked him to come in and to your heart, you've never asked him to forgive you of your sins, but you'd like to today, this is a great opportunity, a great opportunity. If you can feel his love. feel him pulling on your heart you need to respond just say yes Lord you don't have to know it all understand it all just be responsive to what you feel the Lord pulling on in your heart <clears throat> you know in this atmosphere today you can feel God's love <coughs> excuse me but at the same time your conscience can be smiting you so you feel God's love but you can also feel a weight sometime at some level of shame or guilt or regret thank you and when you give your heart to the Lord he silences your conscience the Bible says he purges it or cleanses it so your conscience doesn't afflict you you don't feel a sense of regret and shame perpetually so that's what God does. So when you ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin and come into your heart, He gives you a fresh new beginning and your past is no longer a weight to you. It's no longer a shame. 
to get a brand new start in life. And that's what God's all about. So, you know, if you want to give your heart to the Lord today, you just, you can do it anywhere, but we invite you to the altar. It kind of makes it official. Not that it would be any other place, but it just has a way of making it more profound. And you ask someone to pray with you, I'd like to give my heart to the Lord. And they say, okay, we got it. So we join hands together. We lead you in a prayer. We say a sentence, you repeat the sentence. And something wonderful, dynamic, and eternal happens in your heart. It's called a new birth, a new beginning, a fresh start. And your life starts all over again in a much better and glorious way. If you're here today and you've never prayed a prayer like that, this is a great opportunity. And um, just respond to the tug on your heart, the feel that love of God that you feel and you'll never ever regret it ask the prayer partners to come forward now and if you're here today and you want to give your life to Christ if you want to give your life back to Christ maybe maybe you did but then you didn't now you want to again God's real happy about that just come on down he'll be glad to do it if you're watching us on the live stream thank you for joining us in that way today I hope the word of God has touched you and wherever you are, you can pray, and God will receive you. You can give your heart to the Lord. You can get your life back on track. And you can pray, and God will give you a divine override. Whatever you're facing and whatever you're going through, He'll give you a divine override in your life. So I'm going to pray for those here today, and I'm going to pray for those watching on the live stream, and ask God to give you divine overrides in your life. Let's stand together, and if you need prayer ministry, come forward right now. Whoever you are, whatever you need, you can come forward. Uh, if you're giving your life to Christ for the first time or you're returning to Him, or if you need a divine override in some specific area of your life, let us join with you in faith and believe God for supernatural things to happen in your life. Are you ready? Father, we thank you for your nearness today, for your reality that has come upon us for your presence that's so close. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your people would be wonderfully touched. I pray for people that have not given their life to the Lord. May your love be totally irresistible, totally irresistible, and draw them close in salvation, I pray. Now, Father, I pray for divine overrides to be released in this congregation, in this altar, and those watching at home. I pray for divine override in Jesus' name. A divine override in Jesus' name. God, override what the enemy has done, choices they may have made, override the natural course of events, override the laws of nature, and do something powerful and life-changing. Lord, do something directly in their lives and turn it around in Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. All right, as you can see, people are coming forward receiving prayer, and if you need prayer, you can do so now. Um, you're welcome here in this altar. We like to close our altar with opening them so you can come and receive prayer for whatever it is you need from God. You're, we're happy to pray for you right now. I'll pray a blessing over you, and you can be dismissed. Um, and thank you very much for being here. I'll be racing to the foyer. Hope to meet all of our guests before you leave. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and give you peace. May goodness and mercy follow you and the joy of the Lord fill your heart and give you strength. May he bless everything that your hands touch. May he hear your prayer and answer them quickly. I pray this prayer on you all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and I'll see you again soon.